Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. When a young boy is scared of his own house, his mother is forced to ask the question, is there something else here? Something only he can see? And then we travel to Oklahoma on that fateful day of April 19th, 1995. After domestic terrorists destroyed a federal building, first responders rushed to the scene, hoping to save lives. But one of them stumbled headfirst into a government cover-up. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host Jason Carpenter, I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. Hope you guys are having tons of fun doing whatever you're doing. We got a lot of stuff to cover today. I, you know, I'm looking at my calendar and I don't know still if we're going to be able to do a Christmas Day live stream. I guess I should figure it out. I have to give you guys an answer by this week. Um, uh, but uh, I'll, I'll uh, let you guys know soon. Someone who never lets things wait. Someone who always announces what's happening in any reasonable amount of time so people can prepare for it. Running into Dead Rabbit Radio Command right now. Everyone get on your feet and give it up for Judge Holden. Woohoo! Yeah! Wee! <laughs> yeah! Running on in to Dead Rabbit Radio Command. Judge Holden recently sent me his Spotify wrapped, which showed how much he listened to Spotify and he was sharing it on his social media. So thanks for getting the word out, Judge Holden. You're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the show financially, that is the way to help out the show. Spread the word about Dead Rabbit Radio. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell everyone you know. Dead Rabbit Radio is your favorite paranormal show. Judge Holden, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Dead Rabbit Dirigible. Let's leave behind Dead Rabbit Command. Fly us all the way out to a house in the suburbs. Nice leisurely ride in the bunny blimp. Don't know why I didn't call it that. And with uh, the Dead Rabbit Dirigible, piloted by Judge Holden, we're headed all the way out to this house in the suburbs. This first story is pretty short because the uh, second story is a bit longer, but let's go ahead and get this guy started. We're walking around the suburbs. This is in an unnamed town. We're walking around and we see this house. And inside this house, we're going to meet a young family. We have a mother. Let's call her Danielle. And a son. Let's call him Xavier. Danielle's sitting in the kitchen uh, eating some scrambled eggs or something and she hears from another room little Xavier he's in preschool this is a little dude mommy mommy oh mommy <laughs> Danielle's like oh man she puts down her eggs her scrambled eggs and she walks into her bedroom and there is a little Xavier rocking back and forth on the ground no so scary and she picks up little xavier 
carries him. <laughs> you know what's so funny? I picked this story because it was so short, and I'm just telling him this weird, long narrative. A uh, little, little Xavier got an A on his test the day before. Let me get to the meat and potatoes of this. So little, little Xavier is sitting there crying, and Danielle's like, "What's up? What's up, honey? What's up, little baby boy?" And he goes, "The rope man. I saw the rope man." Oh, <laughs> here's the thing. On the one hand, I don't want kids because I'm so irresponsible with my own life. I don't want to drag any other humans into into my orbit. On the other hand, I think kids would be hilarious because they're scared of everything. Even things that may not exist. And and you would be wondering, as you're holding this little crying preschooler going, the rope man, mommy, the rope man. All of a sudden, all these visions of you dressing up in rope, chasing him down a hallway late at night. Like, that would be a hilarious prank. But it also, fun. kids would be fun to, like, uh, like trick and fool. But then also, it would be cool if you had a kid who could see ghosts or was telling you, like, spooky stories. You're all peeing in your bed. You won't get up. You won't get up in the middle of the night. Because he's like, the bloody sister came to me again. The bloody sister wants more blood. <laughs> see you later. See you later, Dad. I'm going to go to bed. He's like 14. He's been taunting me my whole life. I'm like, oh, no, not the bloody sister again. Ah, Peeing in my bed. Like, it would be cool. Like, I know not all kids say spooky stuff. I don't want to have a kid. <laughs> I have a little kid and I'm putting him in dark rooms, leaving him there for a couple hours. Hey, buddy, buddy, what'd you see in there? He's like, nothing, because it was pitch black. Pitch black. It's horrible. I'm like, oh, man, you're not one of those Sixth Sense kids. You're just one of those normal kids. I'd like to have a kid if I knew that they could see spooky stuff and tell me about it in a spooky way. Like, do the little, she's coming, daddy. She's already here. Like that, right? I wouldn't want it if the kid's like, oh, by the way, there's a bloodthirsty demon behind you. They're all playing on their Switch. Anyways, I'm sure there's a lot of other good things that come from having kids, but that would be pretty dope if your kid was complaining about the rope man. I mean, that's original, right? It's not just the spooky guy. It's not the boogeyman. It's the rope man. Well, Danielle's not <laughs> Danielle's not a cold-hearted psychopath like I am. She's concerned for her son because she can tell he's just trembling, right? He's so scared. Of this rope man. She's never seen any rope man. She's never heard of the rope man. It was really affecting his like daily life. Because he kept seeing this thing over and over again. And she's like, honey, what is the rope man? And he goes, sometimes I'm walking through the house and in your bedroom, mommy. Which of course, <laughs> that would be the best part right now. Your bedroom's on it. That, that's cool. A little little Xavier goes, sometimes when I'm walking through the house, I look into your bedroom, mommy, and there's a man sitting on your bed with ropes wrapped around one of his legs, and he's sobbing. Like his hands are covering his face, and he's leaned over. (laughs) Hence the screaming, right? That'd be traumatizing. You walk in the bedroom, see a man with ropes wrapped around one of his legs and sobbing. <laughs> I mean, if he magically appeared, he could be tap dancing. It'd be just as terrifying. But he goes, I see him sitting on the foot of your bed, openly sobbing. He goes, sometimes, mommy, I wake up in the middle of the night and he's standing in the hallway of the house. Just standing. He's not crying. Or moving, or doing anything, just standing there with ropes tied around one of his legs. 
it's creepy, right? Just normal, like anytime your kid's seen a ghost. I think anytime there's a, a full body apparition in your house, it ups the level versus my house. I think it's haunted. It's a little spooky. Every so often I smell the smell of grandma's old perfume. I'm not discounting those stories, but there is a different level of creepiness. This one, you have a full body apparition that only your child can see. And it's so abstract. Ropes wrapped around its leg. Like, what, what does that even mean? Well, Danielle said one day her and Xavier were walking around town and Xavier points and goes, ropes, that guy has ropes around his legs, that guy over there, that guy, look at those ropes, mommy. And I'm sure Danielle Peter Pants, I'm sure Danielle's like, ah, no, it's in the middle of the day, I thought we were safe now. She turns to look to see what Xavier is pointing at and he's pointing at a person in a cast wearing a cast around their leg. And she goes, oh, oh, okay. So now this is starting to make a little bit more sense. She goes, honey, that's, those aren't ropes. That's a cast. When you break a leg or break a bone, it, it looks like a mummy, right? The way that they wrap it. So after that, Xavier started calling this figure cast man because he realized that and danielle realized that at the same time it didn't have ropes wrapped around its leg it was wearing a cast but if a preschooler had never really seen a cast or had really processed that what else would it look like but i mean ropes maybe are kind of far-fetched but uh you know it's a kid it looks like a mummy it looks like maybe like some wrappings maybe a rope even One day, Danielle said she was sitting there and Xavier came, came into the room. He's doing a little jig. He's doing a little dance. He's hitting the gritty. And mom goes, why are you doing the gritty? Why are you doing the gritty, Xavier? And he goes, well, I haven't seen the cast man in over two weeks. It was like a celebration. He's all sitting there. He's dancing. He's all twerking. She's like, okay, stop doing that. It's not appropriate. Doing a little victory dance. That's how much trauma this child was going through. Because he was just, this guy kept showing up, openly sobbing, or standing in the hallway. Neither of those are good. And I'm sure, like, I don't think Xavier was walking down the hallway late at night, but I'm sure it was a damned if you do, damned if you don't. He probably slept with his door open. But if you slept with your door closed, maybe the cast man would get you in your sleep. But if you slept with the door open, he just stood there in the hallway. You're like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's a little less spooky. He was seeing this thing so often that once two weeks had gone by and he hadn't seen the cast man, it was worthy of a victory dance. He was super elated because he was seeing this thing so often. But he did see him again. <laughs> he did see him again. He's like, oh, no, happy days are over. But Danielle said over time, the sightings of the cast man tapered off. And to this point, now, she says, she posted this online underneath the name 2D Guy. She said, or maybe it was the dad, <laughs> maybe it was the dad the whole time if his, if his name's 2D Guy. But anyways, we'll stick with Danielle or Danny. Danielle said that now my son is in his 20s, and he doesn't remember any of this. He doesn't remember seeing the cast man standing or sobbing or any of this stuff. He's just kind of wiped it from his memory, which would make sense because, I mean, that was when he was in preschool. He doesn't remember the story at all. 
Danielle remembers it pretty clearly. The story of the cast man. One thing that she found out later was the house that they were living in when the cast man was appearing this whole time when they were living in that house. That house was built over an area that used to be an old hospital. Classic ghost story. Classic ghost story for sure. You have that little kind of thing that brings it together very elegantly. And then it used to be a hospital. So you could imagine that it wouldn't be a stretch to think that this ghost of this man in this cast was one at one point in this old-timey hospital. It's an interesting ghost story. It's one that's fairly basic on the surface, but you look at it and you think, why did it stop appearing? And I'll go over this real quickly because I really do need to spend a lot of time on the next story because it's, it's kind of a really bizarre conspiracy. Real-life story. Real life's nuts. We'll get into that in a second, but... Why did the ghost taper off? General ghost lore says that uh, the soul only has so much time on Earth after death before it dissipates. That's why there are no caveman ghosts. It's a common question that's thrown out in the paranormal world. People go, why are there no caveman ghosts? Well, the theory is, is that the ghosts peter out over time. The oldest ghost on record is in Britain. Like The sightings that you can see today... There's Roman legionnaire ghosts in Britain, and they date it around, I think, 400 AD, somewhere in there. It might be 600 AD. And they are slowly becoming less and less visible over time. Because there were sightings of these ghosts back in the 1800s, so we can match them to the ghost accounts in the 1800s to the ghost accounts of today. I'll put that... I You know what's so funny? I talk about that all the time on this show. I've never actually covered that story i always use it as a reference but i'll have to cover that this week or next week because it's crazy so we know that go that is the oldest ghost that is visible that is still visible on earth so it would seem to be that at max 1400 to 1600 years a ghost can stick around most ghosts in america are antebellum right right before Civil War, post-Civil War, going forward. That's where most of our ghosts are in Britain. It's mostly around the same time period, a little bit earlier, maybe like 17th century going forward, which is still a, a long amount, right? So we do see ghosts dissipate over time, and it seems that newer ghosts may dissipate quicker. But we don't know because we're living in that time period right now. The idea of a mental hospital that was closed in the 1990s that is apparently haunted today. We would have to continue to investigate that place over the decades and centuries to track how long those ghosts stay around. But it is interesting, and I do think that most ghosts dissipate over a much shorter amount of time. Some of them hang on longer. And it seems the ones that hang on the longest are the what we call a residual recording, where there's no actual spirit or soul there it's basically a 3d recording of a previous event the roman soldiers in britain they're literally just walking down the road you can't interact with them one of them it was a roman soldier i believe and his horse that rode through a basement 
and it didn't fit in the basement. It was like half, not that it was gory cut off, but it's like if the horse and the rider were too tall for where the basement was, so it just walked through as if there was nothing there. Because when it walked by there, there was no basement. There was no house. There was nothing there. So what I think is, it, it's always hard to tell over in a shorter period of time if it's a residual haunting or an actual soul trap. This one could be either one, and it could be a residual haunting, and it just faded away over time, because only the boy was seeing it. It's also possible as the boy got older, which is something we always look at as far as ghosts go, that people lose the ability to see ghosts, because their brain just starts to filter out information. It's the same thing when you're driving down the road. You can't tell me the driver's license plates of the three cars to your left and the two cars to your right. You can't. You have that information. Your brain recorded all of that. You can't access it because you're just filtering out all that stuff. The only thing you're looking at is what's dangerous in front of me, stoplights, things like that, speedometer. You filter out all that information even though your brain records it. It's also possible, though, that this is was an actual ghost. It's also possible it was an actual ghost. And I'm wondering if it was a ghost. It was the soul of this young man who probably, I'm assuming... Spent some time in this hospital and was also really, really sad. Breaking your bone nowadays, big deal. But as you're listening to this podcast, Four Broken Bones, you might disagree. But, you know, there was a, maybe, it could, I could make all, all sorts of scenarios. He was supposed to be a football player, broke his leg, couldn't play football anymore. It's possible that he broke his leg and then got some bad news while he's in the hospital. He survived the car accident, but his loved one didn't. Who knows? But I, I think in a haunting haunting, a traditional hunting, a soul trapped on earth. I think there would be a point where you could either find your way to the other side by yourself or realize that you're doing severe emotional trauma to this child. I think, I think a good amount of ghosts that when children see them, I would assume they'd feel pretty bad about it. I think it's the same thing when someone's really old and they're not a pervert. They're not a pervert. They're not a creep. They're nothing like that, but they kind of look like a creep. Like the general societal idea of a creep. They walk around with hard candy in their pocket. And they're wearing some old dusty jacket and pants and stuff like that. <laughs> Hopefully they're wearing pants because if they weren't, they'd definitely be pervert. But it's the old man in your neighborhood who always has been friendly with kids. Had a couple of his own, but they moved on. And, you know, he gets calls from him every once in a while, but not as much as a father would want. And he's walking around town giving hard candies out to the kids. He's not a creep. He's not a pervert. But that is such like the stereotype. If you told him, hey, listen, man, I know you're trying to be friendly and all, but like these kids actually, they're kind of scared of you. He would be able to be like, oh, oh, so sorry, so sorry. But that would break that old man's heart. That's not what he was trying to be at all. And he probably would shuffle back to his house. <laughs> That's most depressing <laughs> The story you just came up with. The example you just came up with your wife in a tear away. You know what I mean? I wonder how many ghosts, even if they don't find their way to the other side, they're like, they're lost, they're confused, they're sad and lonely. But then every so often when they blink into existence, they see this little boy staring at him, just sobbing. He's back, mommy. He's back. And running down the hallway, and eventually you just may be like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go. Like, I understand that I'm dead and I don't know what comes next, but I know I can't be here because I'm traumatizing this little little guy. 
who knows? Very interesting ghost story. I love sometimes just telling a good old basic ghost story because those can also give us a lot of clues and things to think about when it comes to the world of the paranormal. Judge Holden, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the world-famous Carpenter Copter. Everyone climb on board. We're leaving behind this house in the suburbs. Fly us all the way out to Oklahoma. <laughs> tell you right now that segment was supposed to be like 10 minutes long that was kind of the plan five to ten minutes long because this next segment will go long but i don't want to miss any details with this one i had not heard this story before this was an absolutely cnn i don't know i know they've gone through some ownership changes recently but they are covering some crazy stuff Stories that I think and most conspiratorial minded folks would think the mainstream media would not touch with a 10 foot pole. This is one of them. It's nuts. Let's go ahead and get started here. Uh, and CNN, it was written by the article was written by Thomas Lake for CNN. Quick overview of Oklahoma City bombing. April 19th, 1995, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. The Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building. It was just a nondescript office building. If you didn't know what was in it, you would just figure it was a bunch of paper pushers and, you know, maybe some accounts, maybe some insurance company salesmen. All It's a federal building nestled in the middle of Oklahoma City. At 9.02 in the morning, April 19th, there's a rider rental van. It's a rental service, if you're not familiar with it, driving down the street. And the dude behind the steering wheel, Timothy McVeigh, veteran of the first Gulf War, driving in this rider rental truck, and he drives up to the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building and jumps out and starts running as fast as he can. Now, this was in downtown Oklahoma City. People saw just that. That would be weird enough. You see, not the rental van part. They're like, whoa, someone who's living in Oklahoma City? Call the mayor. No, you would see this rental van pull up and then stop outside of a building. And if you were in this vicinity and you saw someone jump out and run as fast as they could away from the van, worst case scenario, it's going to catch on fire, right? You saw something, it breaks, it's shooting out from underneath the vents or whatever. You wouldn't think massive bomb was about to be detonated in Oklahoma City. Pre-9-11. Unabomber was just a few little bombs here and there, very targeted strikes. You would not think that this was going to happen, but people noticed that. People noticed this rental van stop and the driver get out and start running. And then the unthinkable happened. This massive bomb ripped through the federal building. 168 people killed, 680 people injured. I was in college at the time. I remember watching all the news reports and things like that. The one thing that the press made very clear, and not that they shouldn't, was that there was a daycare in there for the workers of the building. You would assume if you were blowing up an office building, you wouldn't kill a lot of kids. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case here. There was a daycare center there. A bunch of kids got blown up. A bunch of kids got injured. Horrific tragedy and set that timer because the conspiracies start 
right when Timothy McVeigh jumped out of that van. There were eyewitnesses that said two people jumped out of a rider van and just took off, and then moments later there was this huge explosion, and then they'd cut to someone else. Be like, yeah, I was crazy. I was just sitting here. I was eating my lunch, and this rider van pulls up. That's nothing weird about that. But then I see two people jump out, and they start running a couple moments later. But the official story is there was only one person in that van. Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh, Iraq War veteran. Very, very dissatisfied with the U.S. government, and that's putting it lightly. He was a sympathizer, quote-unquote sympathizer, with the United States militia movement. This was another big thing in the 90s. I know they're still around today, but it's not as big as it was in the 80s and the 90s, where it was things that was being covered on the nightly news. Now you'll hear stuff about Amon Bundy in the Pacific Northwest, but growing up in the 90s, there was this sense, this palpable sense, that each state, especially in the Midwest, had these armed militias, which is their right, which is in the Constitution, <laughs> is in the Constitution, but openly talking about how evil the Clinton administration was and all of this stuff. And things only got worse, as far as that goes, when you had events like Ruby Ridge happen. I don't remember the exact date for that. You had events like Ruby Ridge, which was a 30-second watered-down version of it. It was a family of survivalists slash domestic terrorists, depending on what the government felt, what the news were saying. They had their cabin sieged by, I believe, it could have been ATF, could have been FBI, could have been working together. They had their cabin put under siege. And in a shootout going on between federal agents and the family in Ruby Ridge, a mother holding her child was shot in the head and killed. She like looked out the window or peeked out the door and they blew her head off. A sniper took her out. And that was a huge moment in the militia movement. You're, they were saying, this is what they're going to do to everybody. This is what they're going to do to everybody. They killed her in cold blood. I, I mean, you're having a shootout, right? It's a standoff. I don't know. I'm not trying to be a shill for the United States government. I'm not an expert on the Ruby Ridge encounter. I'll put stuff in the show notes. Waco, right? This is one that I think more people are familiar with. Waco, the date, April 19th, 1995, that Timothy McVeigh chose to attack the um, federal building was not chosen at random. He didn't throw darts at a calendar. That was the two-year anniversary of the end of the siege at Waco. We talked about this recently during a live episode. I do Patreon live episodes Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. We kind of started talking about Waco. We ha- You have this religion, uh, cult, again, however you want to define it. Allegations of child abuse, sexual child abuse. They were stockpiling weapons but again that is not illegal in america to stockpile weapons you had the people in the nearby town of waco complain about these branch davidians saying they're stocking you know, i mean listen it's not it may not be illegal it can be scary it can be scary uh, i have no problem with you going i don't want the, I don't want those people with the stockpile of weapons so close to my town i get it And that was another story that I did a lot of research on years in the past. So I'm really kind of going off memory. But the the people in town were saying, listen, the the Branch Davidians were threatening us. It wasn't like they were driving through towns in an armed convoy like Mad Max. But the encounters that the townspeople had with them, they go, we are afraid they're going to come into the town and kill everybody. 
The sexual assault charges, people have, you know, some people have said that those are accurate. Some people have said that they are not. Uh, I don't know. I've always heard that they there was child brides and stuff going on in there, which wouldn't surprise me. The stuff with the child brides and the child sexual abuse, I mean, again, like, that wouldn't surprise me, unfortunately, because it was like this religious compound and David Koresh, the leader of this sect. The Branch Davidians were around before David Koresh. David Koresh was the leader of this sect of Branch Davidians. He saw himself as the prophet. All this stuff we always see in these cults. The child bride stuff, I hope, isn't true. But it it probably is. I could be wrong. I know there are people who say nothing bad ever happened at Waco. I've heard of those arguments as well. Until the ATF stormed it. And this was footage, I remember, before stuff went viral, before the internet was really even a thing. Because this would have been in 93, two years earlier. On the news, you saw four ATF agents get gunned down on the roof of the Branch Davidian compound. They were going in to take all their guns. ATF is Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, the Federal Bureau. Branch Davidians knew they were coming, or probably saw them coming. It was kind of like a open field, and then you had this compound in the middle, and they opened fire on ATF. ATF said they shot first. Branch Davidians said, no, the ATF shot first. All this stuff comes down. It ended up being this huge siege. I think it was around 40 days during the Clinton administration. And... I remember watching on the news. It was something, I mean, imagine anything going on for 40 days. For the first 10 days, that's all they talk about on the news. By day 13, they still talk about it, but it's not as crazy. By day 22, they're like, first weather, then sports. And then let's find out what's going on in Waco, because it was just federal agents surrounding this compound. Eventually, the feds, it was super embarrassing. It was super embarrassing to the Clinton administration that a bunch of cultists with guns could hold off the strongest military on planet Earth. This has always been my read on this, because they did not need to go into that compound. It was a siege. But I've always felt that it was just super embarrassing for the Clinton administration to have this going on. Janet Reno, Attorney General. So they ordered troops to move in. They ordered the federal government to go into the building and take them out. And the building then burst into flames. That's always been a question. Did the Branch Davidians, because some people say Branch Davidians, set the place on fire on purpose? No one goes out alive. The purity of the flame will prepare your soul for the eternal afterlife. Some people say that, which we see cults do. That would not be out of the norm for this type of group. The other argument is that the flames were started inadvertently by flashbangs being thrown into the compound to stun the people inside. Because there was a lot of people in there. It wasn't just like 14 guys with guns. You had families. Again, you had families in there. Throwing in stun grenades. And uh, stun grenades, these flashbang grenades, can cause fires. And that is a theory, that the fires were started in an accident. And then there's the third, more sinister theory, that the fires were started on purpose. Because they wanted to kill all survivors. And I've heard everything in between. I've heard soldiers accidentally knocking over kerosene lanterns because their electricity was shut off and that would start a fire here. I've heard that. So we have all those different scenarios. But if you're in the militia movement in the 1990s and you 100% sympathize with the Branch Davidians and you watch the federal government just crash through these walls and start shooting people, 
where would wh- what would your reaction be? What would your reaction be? I'm not saying that Timothy McVeigh was justified in what he did. I'm very, very clear on that. But if that was your mindset, you're going to want to take action against someone that you see as evil. Blood for blood. It never works out that way. But Timothy McVeigh got arrested only 90 minutes after the attack. This is quite fast. Right for a random dude to randomly pick a building and to blow it up with a bomb, he re- he was arrested ninety minutes later. He was caught driving without a license plate. Now listen, by the grace of God, right? I I, I think that if the official story is true, or even ninety or eighty percent true, by the grace of God that he got pulled over, that that police officer was probably on high alert in the area because of what just happened and they're looking for anything suspicious and he sees a car with no license plate and he pulls it over and it happens to be the guy who just did detonated a bomb an hour and a half ago that's a miracle because who knows what would have come next it does give a lot of credence to the story that this was an inside job and they knew exactly who to look for but McVeigh said, this was an interesting quote, he said, because obviously, you know, people are like, you killed all these innocent people. Yeah, they were federal agents, but like some of them just worked like for fish and game. Plus all the families, the kids, the people who were working at the daycare, they weren't FBI agents. They weren't ATF agents. This is what he said about it. Quote, I didn't define the rules of engagement in this conflict. The rules, if not written down, are defined by the aggressor. It was brutal. No holds barred. Women and kids were killed at Waco and Ruby Ridge. You put it back in the government's faces exactly what they're giving out. I wanted the government to hurt like the people of Waco and Ruby Ridge had. Timothy McVeigh didn't work alone. The official story that he was alone in the Ryder van, but he was working with this guy named Terry Nichols. And then a third person who knew kind of what was up, he'd kind of heard, he basically, the third person got sentenced, did some time for knowing that the attack was coming, but not notifying anyone. His name was Matthew Fortier. Terry Nichols, so the bomb was made out of like this fertilizer mix. That's the reason most people don't know this, but when you buy fertilizer now, there's actually little, I don't don't know if they're visible to the naked eye, but if you buy fertilizer now, it has little pieces of plastic in it with a serial number. And they're scattered throughout the bag of fertilizer. So because you have to keep, you can't make fertilizer a schedule one product. You can't have it illegal or you can't have it so you can only have so much because we need it for farming. But now when you buy fertilizers, there's these tiny little pieces of plastic in there. So if someone else makes a fertilizer bomb, because I think it's the nitrate in it, they have these tags. They can find when that bag was made and who it was shipped to. On what date? So you can narrow it down. Well, they didn't need any of that with Timothy McVeigh, right? They just happened to pull him up 90 minutes later. But Terry Nichols, the story I always heard was that they were looking for him after they got McVeigh. And when they caught him, he was planting his garden and he was pouring down lots of fertilizer. And it was the same brand of fertilizer that was used in the explosion. That wasn't the only piece of evidence. You're like, oh no, you're all destroying all your fertilizer right now. You're like, I know what I'll do. I'll set it on fire. That'll get rid of it. That wasn't the only piece of evidence, but that did tie him. That that was a story I heard a long time ago. Terry Nichols, life in prison, 
Timothy McVeigh got death. He got a death sentence. He was executed. Here's interesting. He was executed June 11th, 2001. Exactly six months before September 11th. There was a theory that was floating. I haven't even gotten to the main part of the story. I haven't even gotten to the main part of the story. I don't know. Am I going to break this into two episodes? I've never done that before, but... The conspiracy theory that I had heard for a long time, and it's one that I think is quite likely. Because we have three conspiracy theories, or we have the official version. He did it alone. You have the other version, which is it was an inside job that the government had something to do with it, which is always the creepiest one. But then there was a third conspiracy theory. This is the one that I think is most likely, is that Timothy McVeigh was not alone in that van. There was another person in that van when people saw two people running out of the rider van they said yeah it was a white guy and a middle eastern guy i saw two people running out of the van a white guy middle eastern guy yeah i was sitting there i was eating my lunch the van pulls up i see two guys jump out one of the guys looked like he was from the middle east and the other guy looked like he was white this is an old conspiracy theory i'm not taking credit for it but i do think it's probably really close to the truth timothy mcveigh was working with al-qaeda I think we're going to have to split this into two. I think we're going to have to split this into two episodes because I can't even think to to go over the other story. This episode is going to be like two hours long because now that I dropped that bombshell, Al Qaeda. One thing that a lot of people don't realize about Al Qaeda because uh, because of the way the Western media portrayed it. And let me back up. I'm no, by no means an Al Qaeda sympathizer, but what I'm saying is that Al Qaeda meant the base. Al Qaeda meant means the base i think they're still around in some capacity osama bin laden's plan while he did have plans for destroying the united states or at least giving it a horrible black eye he really wanted u.s troops out of saudi arabia he didn't understand why the u.s got to have troops surrounding mecca he goes, how would you guys feel if we surrounded the Vatican City? Like, the, you can't do this. You got to pull all your troops out. But that was his ideological battle. The main thing was this complete collapse of, I don't want to say all society, but there, there basically he saw the world as a duality, the good guys and the bad guys. And in this world, he was with the good guys. Al-Qaeda worked, and there's a lot of documentation to prove this. Definitely you found a lot of this pre-9-11. The narrative changed quickly after it, but Al-Qaeda worked as a venture capital group for terrorists. It wasn't just about Islam versus the West. Al-Qaeda worked as a group, and this we know this is true. We have reports of this, and we'll take a look at 9-11. One of the most chilling, unanswered questions about 9-11. What Al-Qaeda would do is this. Osama bin Laden himself, personally, was a millionaire. They have access to all of these funds, people who are sympathetic to the goals of Al-Qaeda. But you want to keep making money as a group. If you're expecting to be a real-life version of Cobra, you need to keep money coming in. What they would do is a terrorist group would come to them. A regional terror group, terror groups in Japan, in Colombia, Africa, would come to Al-Qaeda and they would ask for money. They say, we need $10,000 to pull off a mass shooting outside this hotel. 
we're going to need. These are the weapons we're going to need. This is the type of vehicles we're going to need to get in and out of the area. Because you're not using your personal cars when you're doing this stuff. You don't want to get caught. You go to Al-Qaeda. You say what you're going to do. And then, this is super interesting. I'll see if I can find the article. I read this article pre-internet, right? Because Al-Qaeda was making moves pre-9-11. Uh, Osama bin Laden gave an interview in Time Magazine or Newsweek Magazine. I remember reading it like the year before where he was talking about how things weren't fair. It's quite odd, quite odd. And he was talking about killing U.S. civilians. He goes, you guys pay taxes to an evil government. So, I mean, if, if I kill you, that's less tax money. Let's see if I can find all this stuff. But anyways, these terror groups would come to Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda would crunch the numbers and they go, okay, we give them $10,000 to attack this hotel. It's a Western hotel in East Angola or whatever. I'm just picking out weird details. What we will do is we will then, because it's not just about the attack, Al-Qaeda would then short sell stock in that hotel company. So let's say it's a Hilton. They would then short sell, which what it means is you, it's like buying stock, but you're betting that the company is going to fail. You're betting that the stock actually goes down. If you see a company starting to make some dumb moves, they're selling their shares for 50 bucks a share. You pay them 50 bucks a share. You're basically giving them money, knowing they're going to not do good things with it. They're going to continue to run their company poorly, and you get money when it fails. That was the whole thing behind that whole GameStop thing. Companies were betting that GameStop was going to fail, and they kind of got caught with their pants held down. But what's happening is Al-Qaeda would say, okay, they're going to open fire outside of this hotel in East Angola. It's Hilton Hotel. It's going to be bad press for Hilton. We're going to see the stock drop maybe 1%, 2%. It's not going to shut down the company or anything. But if we buy this much stock, we'll make $500,000 from this one attack. We are not losing any men. We're not losing any resources but money. Maybe we ship them a couple guns, but that's nothing. So they would then go, okay, here's your money. Here's a couple supplies. They would not be super directly tied into it. Maybe if they wanted someone on the ground to help direct these things. Maybe not. Maybe they figure we can do it ourselves. We just need a little bit of help, like technologically, finances, stuff like that. And then this armed group of maybe six, seven guys would open fire outside this hotel and security forces would show up. There's a gunfire in the middle of the day. A bunch of people get killed, like 12 13 people get killed outside this hotel. Al-Qaeda just made $500,000. They would look at investments like that and see how much money they could make. Now, here's the thing. There is no clear-cut evidence that Timothy McVeigh worked with Al-Qaeda. But there's always been these connections. One, he was in the Middle East. He did serve in the Middle East if he was going to meet people over there. It's not like he served in the Middle East and came back and says, I hate America. He most likely was a malicious sympathizer even before he entered the military. You're going to meet like-minded people wherever you go. It's possible that he made a connection with someone who, while he's serving the military, he's also just getting a paycheck. He's going to meet other people who don't like the U.S. government over there. He's going to make connections. So we can put him in the region too. We have, I mean, it's right here. Like Jason, there were millions of troops over there. Yeah, but not millions of troops blew up a federal building a couple of years later. 
Two, we do have multiple sightings of a Middle Eastern man jumping out of that van. I get that when you say there's three shooters at Columbine, they were all supposedly dressed in the black trench coat look, right? So if you thought that you saw three people down the hallway, bullets are flying by, you're freaking out, and there was really only two, I'll excuse that mistake. I could see how that could happen. Not like it's my business to excuse mistake, but I, I, I think you know what I mean. Like, I could see how you could miss, you see one guy walking over a room and then you see another guy come out and you might think it's a third guy. I could see how you can mess that up. These were two people with two completely different skin tones. It would be like if people said there was three guys at Columbine and one of them was black. That'd be a lot harder to be like, no, it's just two white guys. You'd be like, oh, no, I'm pretty sure because I saw the two white guys and then I saw a black guy. You had multiple accounts of a white man and a Middle Eastern man running out of this rider truck. And then eventually they just said, no, 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 that didn't happen. It was just one white guy. You have to figure witnesses are like, oh, no, it was two dudes. It was two dudes. I mean, you can tell me that was only one white guy. That doesn't make sense. I saw two people run out. It wasn't that there was just one person and it was a Middle Eastern guy. It was that it was two people, a white guy and a Middle Eastern guy. But anyways, we have that. I think it's very interesting that people, they tried to get more and more information out of Timothy McVeigh because he was executed. They were trying to get him to talk to, say if there's anyone else connected to this plan, and he never spoke. Even as the day of his death, approached he would not speak on the day he was to be executed they asked him again do you want to get anything off your chest (laughs) you want to tell us about any other terrorists you might have been working with he refused he didn't say no he just refused to speak and he went to his death by never answering any more questions if he was working with other people and like he committed the bombing of the oklahoma city federal building on the anniversary of the end of the siege at Waco, it's very interesting that six months to the day the Twin Towers were attacked. So is there a connection between... I remember a long time ago I read a much... I'll see if I can find the article. There's a real... I didn't expect to go into all this background detail, honestly. I thought I was just going to do a quick overview. Like five minutes. (laughs) And then get into the main conspiracy thing. We're going to have to save that for tomorrow, but I read this long article detailing all the connections between Timothy McVeigh and Al-Qaeda. Those are just the because I didn't prep. I didn't prep any of this. All The last 40 minutes has literally been off the top of my head. I think I wrote down how many people died at Oklahoma City and the date and time it took place. Everything else I've just kind of been remembering. So forgive me if some of the details are wrong. I'm going to go through and try to find some of the articles to back this stuff up, but um, a lot of this stuff was pre-internet. Yeah, I read it. It really interesting. Now, this was post-internet. I'll see if I can find it, but it was a really interesting article, all the connections between Al-Qaeda and Timothy McVeigh. I mean, think about it. It totally fits in their wheelhouse. It's a strike against America. It's a terrorist strike targeting civilians of a sense, right? You do have federal agents and you could argue that they aren't civilians. But again, if you're like fish and game, I don't think that you have a big sway on foreign government policy. You don't get to choose where the U.S. troops are. But that in Osama bin Laden and Timothy McVeigh's world, that didn't matter. You were part of this organization. You were, even though you were the smallest of wheels in this huge mechanism, that mechanism was used to destroy people. 
And you chose to be that cog. You chose to take that job. And therefore, you have written off your right to live. That's really was the philosophy in a lot of these groups. It's horrific because we don't think that way. We don't think that way. You don't think that when you pay your taxes, you're like at the bottom, you're like, and yes, you can kill me during a war. But that is the, uh, we see this ideology in terrorist groups. They go, if no one paid taxes, the government would collapse. But the government's here because you pay taxes, therefore you're a target. A legitimate target. That's how they're looking at this. How they're looking at this stuff. Anyways, um, fascinating stuff. Oh, and the 9-11 question that's never been answered. And it, it it's never been answered if you don't know what Al-Qaeda does. This has been around the conspiracy theories for a long time. Again, it, Inside Job was 9-11 and Inside Job was 9-11. Just pure Al-Qaeda by the book strategy. Leading up to 9-11, United Airlines and American Airlines had their stock short sold. A bunch of people, somebody, we don't know who, was short selling American Airlines and United Airlines. So the planes crash. The stock begins to drop. This is all happening like as people are trying to figure out what's going on. People are like selling their shares of United Air because they don't know if it's an accident at this point. They don't know what's going on. People, the stock of these companies drop. And then the stock market gets shut off. That is something that can happen. The U.S. stock market just was frozen in place. But it wasn't frozen in, I think, Japan. Because just the way everything was going, people had short... They'd bet against American Airlines, United Airlines. Um, We shut off the U.S. stock market. A couple hours later, though, it was 6 a.m. in Japan. While all this stuff is still going on, like at this point, it's the afternoon in America or however, but uh, they're not thinking. Someone wasn't thinking or someone was thinking, and this was all part of the plan. Japan at 6 a.m., their stock market opens and somebody covers all of their United Airlines, American Airlines stock and made millions of dollars off the attack. Millions upon millions of dollars. The stock dropped so much and they had bet that it was going to drop in the weeks leading up to 9-11. And by the time the investigators and the U.S. regulators, everyone figured out what had happened, all the transactions were finalized. They can never find out who or what organization had short sold those stocks because that would 100% show foresight. Somebody knew those attacks were coming. Now, the argument has always been that's what Al-Qaeda does. That's 100% how they operate. They short sell the people they're about to attack. It's genius if you think about it. It's evil if you think about it for one second longer. But people go, that's what Al-Qaeda does. There's not really a mystery to it. It was most likely front companies for Al-Qaeda. They knew what they, were, they knew exactly what planes they were going to use. It wasn't like they showed up at the airport and go like, oh, I wonder which one. They knew they bought the tickets in advance. They knew what planes they were going to use. Had they locked down the Asian stock market, they might not have profited, right? But no one was really thinking about that. It just happened. Everyone else was wondering, oh my God, what just happened in New York? Fascinating story. And that's always been a thing about another thing, arguing that it was an inside job. That was, there was government agents. I'm sure, I've talked about this before. I'm sure a lot of people knew 9-11 was going to happen. I don't necessarily think the 
United States was behind it, but I think there were people in the United States who turned a blind eye and die. I don't think they actually planned it. Because it is by the book Al-Qaeda. And there's also, obviously, a lot of... Al-Qaeda was trained by the U.S. government to fight the Soviets in the 80s. So, I mean, we had connections to him. He was a freedom fighter for a long time. So we did train him in a way. And you could argue that there's those connections and everything. It's such a web. But what I really wanted to talk about, fascinating story we're going to get to tomorrow, is the story of a man named Terrence... Yiki. Terrence Yiki was just like you and me. He was a guy getting through life, doing his job. He was a police officer. He was a police officer in Oklahoma City who was on duty on April 19th, 1995. When he rushed into that building not even worried about his own safety. He rushes into the rubble of this building and begins pulling people out of the rubble. He has no idea that he's about to stumble across a government conspiracy. Is it possible that the Oklahoma City bombing was an inside job? That's what Terrence Yeeke thought. Terrence Yeeke, one of the very first first responders on the scene, started to put together the pieces that it wasn't just Timothy McVeigh. It wasn't even just Al-Qaeda, or possibly Al-Qaeda. He wasn't saying that, but he started to think, what if the government, what if the U.S. government, for whatever weird, twisted reason, was behind the devastation I'm standing in right now? Terrence, covered in ash, hands bloodied, the cries of the dead and the dying surrounding him. He has to wonder, who did this? And his quest for that answer would lead to his... Well, that's up for debate. But we'll talk about that on tomorrow's episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. Dead Rabbit Radio at gmail.com is going to be our... I forgot. This whole episode's been off memory. No notes. Dead Rabbit Radio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. 